The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. It's your host, the niche of the niche. And on this episode, I'm going to be playing for you an interview that was recorded back a few years ago. I think this was 2013. And the guest, no longer with us, but whose music will live forever, Pete Seeger. Pete Seeger has been called by a lot of people the father of American folk music. Pete Seeger was not just a folk singer, but a banjoist, recording artist. Many of the songs that he's synonymous with are still known today. If I had a hammer, turn, 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 where have all the flowers gone? A lot of these songs not known necessarily just for his interpretations, but also the many, many people who recorded them. The Birds, the Kingston Trio, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Then there were people like Harry Belafonte, Joan Baez, Roy Orbison. I could keep going. The thing about Pete Seeger that was interesting was how much his life intersected with people who are so culturally relevant today. People like Don McLean, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen. Let's just get into the interview. Pete Seeger is no longer with us, but his music lives on, and I hope you enjoy this interview. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to welcome our special guest, Pete Seeger. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, Paul, what can I tell you you don't know already? <laughs> There's plenty I don't know. Well, for starters, who is Pete Seeger? Well, I was born 93 years ago to a family of musicians. My mother was a very good violinist. My father invented the term ethnomusicology and studied the music of all the world. And he took me at age 17 to hear uh, the Kentucky Mountain Banjo Pickers, uh, and I fell in love with what they call the folk banjo, and uh, never suspected at the time I'd make a living singing it, but uh, I've been a song leader all my life. At eight, eight, eight years old, I had a ukulele, and at school I'd get the kids singing around me the, the pop songs of the day. What is it about banjo music that you like? Well, it's a very rhythmic instrument. Uh, the guitar can be rhythmic, and mandolins and other string instruments played with picks. But banjo is especially well adopted to playing all sorts of syncopations and unusual rhythms. For example, in Africa, where the banjo came from, uh, it's very common to break up eight short beats into three, three, and two short beats. Deedly, 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 And this is the rumber rhythm when it's slowed down. Boom, 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 boom. And the banjo is well adapted to doing that at lightning speed. This is what Earl Scruggs did. Uh, he invented a way of playing the banjo at lightning speeds in 
syncopated rhythms. You mentioned some of the music you heard growing up. Can you remember a artist that in particular was a favorite of yours? No, except my father. He played the piano beautifully, and I love to hear him do uh, occasional classical pieces that were not too complicated. I remember once, uh, one of my favorites was a Chopin etude, which means a study, where the left hand played uh, two beats per measure, and the right hand played three beats per measure. This is very common in uh, parts of South America, where if there's one guitar, one guitar will be playing in a three rhythm, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, and the other guitar is playing in two rhythm, one, two, one, two, one, two. Uh, of course, some people in India pride themselves on even more complicated rhythms. They'll play four against five or six against seven. <laughs> Of the banjo players performing today, who do you most appreciate? I think Earl Scruggs is still the king of them all, although he died recently. But uh, he was beautiful, not just clever. He was truly beautiful. As was Doc Watson, who died even more recently. Uh, these were... Country people who liked to make music all their childhood, and when they grew up, uh, they made their music for people all over the country and in other countries, too. Our special guest is Pete Seeger. What is it like to write with Lore Wyatt, and how did you meet him? Uh, Laurie Wyatt is a very good songwriter. He, I met him when the Clearwater first sailed into Long Island Sound. It, the Clearwater sloop Clearwater was built up in Maine, and when we sailed into Long Island Sound, we stopped at Port Jefferson, and there was a skinny young fellow who made up wonderful new verses. And one of his songs he put to a kind of a blues stomp, a very fast blues melody, sailing up... And the whole crowd is, repeats that, sailing up. And then you say, sailing down, and they all repeat that. Then you reverse it, and you say, up, and the crowd says, down. And you say, down, and the crowd says, up. And uh, this has been a Clearwater favorite ever since. Let's see, since 1969, that means uh, 53 years. <laughs> and he's still making up songs. He made up so Mosel Barco. It's a, a one, a one uh, short song introducing people to the Spanish language. So Mosel Barco, so Mosel Mar, yo navego en ti, torna vegas en miti. We are the boat. That's what so Mosel Barco means. We are the sea. So Mosel Mar. I sail in you, you sail in me. And then the verses uh, are quite creative and beautiful. And uh, 
he made this up about 30 years ago, and the Clearwater folks have sung it ever since. On that note, who do you think is the great, the truly greatest songwriter out there? Hard to say. Uh, I really would find it hard to say. Joni Mitchell is one of the great ones. Buffy St. Marie is another one of the great ones. And Tom Paxton is another one of my favorites. But it's hard to say, oh, I know Stan uh, Rogers, the Canadian. I've been trying to memorize his great ballad about the sinking of the Mary Ellen Carter. It's a it's a narrative ballad about, uh, made up by a rank-and-file seaman, <laughs> at least in the song, about a ship that sank. And he and his friends decide they will raise it. The second verse says, The owners wrote her off. Not a nickel would they spend. She gave 20 years of service, then met her sorry end. Uh, insurance played the cost to us, so let her rest below. They laughed at us and said we'd have to go. But we talked of her all winter, some days around the clock. She's worth a quarter million, afloat and at the dock. With every jar that hit the bar, we swore we would remain and make the Mary Ellen Carter rise again. And the whole crowd sings, rise again, rise again. It's a truly great ballad. And was written by a truly great band. Stan Rogers was riding in an airplane that had a fire, and the, a pilot landed this uh, plane at the nearest airport where he could set her down. And Stan Rogers got out, but he heard somebody hollering inside. So he ran back inside the plane and dragged a person out. Then he heard another person hollered, and he went inside a second time and dragged a person out. And he went in a third time to drag another person out, but this time he did not return. Who do you think is going to do a good job of carrying on the folk tradition? Oh, <laughs> I don't like to talk in the terms of best. That's like asking your mother, what's your favorite child? That means at any one time. <laughs> at any one time, this or that is my favorite. What are your memories of meeting Leadbelly? I was surprised he was not a tall man. I'd say about, well, he was medium tall, about five foot ten, five foot nine. Yes, about five foot nine. But boy, was he muscular. He, he had spent his life working on prison farms, uh, chopping trees, digging holes, doing whatever they asked him to do on the chain gang. And when he took off his shirt, he had muscles like a prize fighter and walked light and nice feet. Although he was in his 60s, he had a spring in his step. Then he died of Lou Gehrig disease only 10 or 15 years later after he was discovered and 
let out of prison. He may, oh, yes, the man, uh, folklore collector recorded him, and Leadbelly said, do you know the governor? And, uh, and uh, Mr. Lomax, the folklore collector, said, well, I don't know him well, but I meet him occasionally. He says, well, play him this song. Governor Neff, if I had you where you have me, I'd wake up in the morning and set you free. <laughs> <laughs> and by gosh, the governor did. What was your first impression when you met Bob Dylan? Wow. What a fantastic talent. Absolutely fantastic. But then he did not want to be owned by his fans any more than he wanted to be owned by anybody. He didn't want to be controlled by anybody. And so he purposely uh, did something that he knew at least half of his fans would object to, and he went electric. Now, I didn't mind him going electric. What I minded was that I couldn't understand a single word of what he was saying because they had the sound turned up so high you could not hear him. I ran over to the sound man. This was 1955 in Newport, and said, uh, fix the sound so we can understand the words. And he shouted back, no, this is the way they want it. Huh. Uh, his managers. And uh, I said, damn it, if I had an axe, I'd cut the cable. <laughs> what do you think about Bob Dylan today? I cannot understand one word. I went to hear him when he came and played for 4,000 people in our local baseball park. Willie Nelson was with him. And I could hear every single word that Willie Nelson sang. But, Bob, I could not understand that single word. No, one word the whole evening I got. <laughs> You've had so many honors through the years, like being inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Too many. You've sold albums. People have recorded your songs. Like, for instance, everybody knows the song, Where Have All the Flowers Gone? What has been the greatest honor for you? Pete Seeger. The fact that I can walk into my local school and get the kids singing with me in any one of the classes. One of the classes had so much fun singing, they were singing in the hallway and disturbing the whole school. So they were told they couldn't sing anymore. And they liked it singing so much that a friend of mine helped them and they had they got together every week after school and got a name for themselves. They called themselves the Rivertown Singers. <laughs> and they were making up songs as well. Amazing. Your song, Where Have All the Flowers Gone? Why do you think that that song has resonated in so many people's heart? Well, everybody gets blue at times and uh, wonders what chances there are for the future. And this is actually an old song that I simply made an English uh, translation of. I was reading a book, and it told the Cossack soldiers, oh, there was a book, a Russian book, and it described the Cossack soldiers uh, were galloping off to join the Tsar's army 150 years ago, and 
they were singing as they went, where are the flowers, the girls have plucked them, where are the girls, they're all married, where are the uh, husband, they've gone to war. And from those three lines, I made up a new song. I've since found that there's a Yiddish song, also 150 years old, with a completely different melody. Come to think of it, my melody is, I I never knew what the Russian song was, so I put my melody to it. Oh, (laughs) I thought it was my melody, so the friend pointed out, it's an old Irish lumberjack tune. Johnson says he'll load more hay. Says he'll load ten times a day. (laughs) And I just slowed it down. Our special guest is Pete Seeger, joining us to talk about his very long career. You've recently released two albums. What inspires you to keep recording? Mainly Laurie Wyatt, who is still writing songs, but was slowing down in his old age and asked if he could visit me. Maybe the two of us together uh, could help finish some songs, and that's what we did. In a three-day period, we finished about four or five songs, I believe. Some of them funny, and some of them rather sad. But uh, we ended up recording them with a, a, in a local uh, recording studio. Oh, it's an interesting recording studio. It's nothing more than the garage of a tremendously talented West Indian drummer, uh, Jeff Haynes by name. He's traveled the world, but now he's got a family uh, and wants to settle down a little bit. So he turned his garage into his recording studio. When anybody needs an inexpensive but good recording studio, here it is right here in Little Beacon. Population 14,000. One of the people that you've recorded songs with is Bruce Springsteen. What does he like to sing with? He's a very nice guy. Uh, good sense of humor and doesn't fuss around. If he can do something, he'll say yes. If he can't do something, he'll say no. I've never, I don't know where he lives. I don't know his telephone number. But he has a friend who is his manager and a publicity agent, too, I guess in Connecticut, of all places. And he ta- uh, if you want to get in touch with Bruce, you call uh, this man in Connecticut. John Landau is his name. J-O-N-L-A-N-D-A-U. <laughs> I see. <laughs> so what inspired you to create the album Pete Remembers Woody? Well... I guess it was Woody's daughter, Nora, who said, uh, you were one uh, one of the first people in the East uh, that got to know Woody, uh, and then you helped spread his song, This Land is Your Land, till everybody in the whole country knew it. But... uh, People don't know what an extraordinarily creative person he was. He uh, 
inherited a disease which uh, put, t- took him to a mental hospital uh, when he was only 42 years old. His mother died of it. His grandfather died of it. And two of his daughters by his first wife died of this disease. It's called Huntington's. And it, uh, but he uh, started creating when he was only a, a child. Uh, and the teacher in his primary school found this extraordinarily a creative kid and put him on to books that most kids don't start. He was a voracious reader. Uh, he also liked to draw pictures and play jokes. And uh, then they, he went to a different town and then in a different state. And the teacher in the high school, another teacher, found what a, an extraordinarily creative person he was. And again, she fed him all sorts of things. So now, by the time he's a teenager, he was starting to write songs. And a big mistake was made. He got married to a 16-year-old girl. They had three kids. Uh, one of them got killed in a train accident, but the other two got Huntington's. However, he married again, and his four children... Oh, the first child was killed in a terrible accident. Uh, Her mother went around the corner and left her four-year-old daughter in the house alone for no more than five minutes. And she uh, came back to find her four-year-old daughter running around the house, screaming with her dress on fire. Of course, if she'd been older, she would have known you throw yourself on the, in the rug and wrap yourself up with it, or in, put a blanket around yourself, put the fire out. But she was too badly burned, and she died on the way to the hospital. But Woody had already written for her several dozen of the greatest children's songs that have ever been written. Uh, And now they're popular all around the world. (laughs) One of them is, Why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why? Why, oh, why, oh, why? Because, 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 because. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Why can't a dish break a hammer? Why, oh, why, oh, why? Because a hammer's got a pretty hard head. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. <laughs> goodbye, oh, why, oh, why? You give... By now the whole crowd is singing it. Second verse, why does a cow drink water? Why, oh, why, oh, why? Because a cow gets thirsty like you or me or anything else. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. <laughs> There's about 20 Silly verses like that. I think the last one is, why don't you answer my questions? Why, oh, why, oh, why? Because I don't know the answer. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Well, now, as your listeners can tell, at 93, I don't have much of a voice left. But what I can do 
is get a crowd singing. So these days, I, I get a crowd singing and they hardly listen to me. They're singing themselves. <laughs> that reminds me of a quote I heard one time. People go to a concert not to hear an artist, but to hear themselves <laughs> singing. <laughs> well, one of the interesting things about your album, Pete Remembers Woody, is that it has a number of spoken word memories from you about your time with Woody. That's something you've done on some of your past albums. What made you want to do an album like that? I guess it was mainly Woody's daughter, Nora, that persuaded me to do it. People have heard Woody's songs, but they don't really know what he was like as a person. Uh, Woody made a joke about it. He says, that guy Seeker's the youngest man I ever knew. You don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't chase girls. <laughs> I was, he was seven years older than I was. He was 27, I was 20, and uh, he let me tag along after him because I had a good ear, and I could accompany him, give him a banjo accompaniment to his, his guitar, or if he wanted to play the mandolin, uh, he made up a great melody called Woody, I, I called it Woody's Rag. It's a wonderfully syncopated little mandolin tune. And I could back him up in anything he played without having to hear it a second time. One of the most touching recordings I've ever heard personally is from an album called Seeds. It's a rendition of Over the Rainbow. What inspired you to sing that song? <laughs> well, I knew the guy who wrote the words. He was a bit of a lefty like I was, and he uh, never wrote melodies. He wrote one famous song at the beginning of the Depression. Once I built a railroad, made it run made it race against time. Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Buddy, can you spare a dime? It's the song of somebody who's dead broke, but he led a very creative life, didn't help do great things. Once I built a tower to the sun, bricks, livets, and lime. Once I built a tower, now it's done. Buddy, can you spare a dime? It was a hit song way back in 1932, I think. He also wrote a... Oh, some... Oh, I can't... My brain is gone. I can't remember the second very well-known song. But then, in 1938, a musician named Harold Arlen, a truly great melody writer and was coupled with Yip Harburg to make all the songs in the movie The Wizard of Oz. And when they first sat down to uh, write the songs, Yip says, Harold, get me a melody for the phrase Over the Rainbow. I suppose you know the rainbow is a worldwide symbol for getting along, people getting along together. As an old spiritual says, God gave Noah the rainbow sign. No more water, fire next time. Pharaoh's army got drowned Oh, Mary, don't you weep. Great old spiritual. Well, Arlen said, uh, yep, there's no rainbow in The Wizard of Oz. I, I've read the script. 
And Yip says, I'm putting it in. <laughs> well, they, then uh, Harold came in with this beautiful melody, but he played it grandly all up and down the 88 keys. Yip says, oh, Harold, that's not for little Dorothy. That's for Nelson Eddy or some grand opera singer. Poor Arlen, his collaborator, turned down his great melody. He knew it was great. Well, they both knew another man who wrote lyrics for songs, and that was the brother of George Gershwin, Ira Gershwin. And they, it was about midnight, but they call him up, said, Ira, we need your help. Can you come over and advise us? <laughs> and Harold listens to it, and he says, uh, Harold, play it a little faster. Give it a little more rhythm. Oh, and Yip said, oh, now I see it. Yep, yep, I can. And he came back. I don't know whether it took him four hours or four days, but he got this fantastic set of words. And I have changed two of his words at the very end, because if anybody told me, uh, told, if anybody told me, or if I'd been there, rather, when little... Dorothy was singing, why can't I, why can't I? I tell her, you know why you can't? Because you only say, you're only singing for yourself. You've got to sing for everybody, because either we're all going to make it over that rainbow, or nobody's going to make it. So at the end, say, why can't you and I? <laughs> yep, I can hear yep up in heaven saying, yep, uh, Pete, don't futz around with my old my songs. You can <laughs> futz around with your old folk song, but don't you touch over the rainbow. <laughs> and then I tell them the story. If I'd been there with little Dorothy, I said, why can't I? I'd tell her. So now I get the audience singing it, and I do what a lot of uh, preachers in gospel churches do. They call it lining out the hymn. You give the words... And if I have a microphone, I don't need to shout. I, I say the words very clearly into the microphone, and then the audience sings them at a much slower speed. Somewhere over the rainbow. Somewhere over the rainbow. Skies are blue. Skies are blue. And the dreams that you dare to dream really do. And the dreams that you dare to dream really do come somewhere over the rainbow. <laughs> and uh, I once had got 80,000 people singing it in New York City. They had a peace demonstration. And I couldn't hear them well because they stretch over 30 blocks on First Avenue, a big avenue on the east side of Manhattan, but uh, I was told the people sang because they could hear my, they had the loudspeakers stretched for 30 blocks. That's over a mile. <laughs> that is incredible. Well, I got them singing in Washington, D.C., a half a million people, uh, with the verses as well as the chorus of This Land is Your Land. There's a great verse there that says, uh, was a great high wall there. Uh, 
was the great high wall trying to stop me. That tried to stop. Great big sign. It was a great big sign. It's a private property. It said private property. But on the other side, but on the other side, it didn't say nothing. It didn't say nothing. And I hope you realize what I'm doing. I'm giving you what I do in the mic, and then right after it is slower. That's what the audience is doing. Yeah. They're singing the song. This land was made for you and me. Amazing. It it has to be amazing to to be witnessing something like that firsthand. Well, I I'm really rather proud of it because I as my own voice gets worse and worse, I can get audiences singing better and better, sometimes in harmony. And uh a song I wrote 54 years ago I didn't think anybody but me would ever sing it. But now I get audiences singing the whole song with me. And it's a rather fast song in the beginning, but it slows down at the very end. And uh, audiences slow down with me, and they're harmonizing. It's, it's, uh, I do it almost everywhere I go these days. Well, we were just talking about rainbows, and rainbows are something that we see on the horizon. What is on the horizon for you? Well, I'm in fairly good physical condition for somebody who's 93. I split wood and occasionally help my daughter dig in the garden. Uh, And I have to admit that it doesn't do all that I should. I, I never did setting up exercises but I got a split disc, a very painful thing in your backbone, and the chiropractor I went to said, you'll get over it, and you'll stay over it if you lie on the floor, uh, not on a nice soft uh, mattress, but lie on the floor and straighten your backbone. And that's not going to be easy. The first time you try, it'll take 10 minutes before your back is really straight. Now, it only takes me about two minutes. (laughs) Wow. What is the best thing about being Pete Seeger? Oh, I'd say having a nice family and a wife I've been married to for 69 years and uh, a wonderful daughter who knows how to use a computer and so she can handle the finances because my memory is really going. People look at me and think that I'm still the same person I was, but they don't know. <laughs> my brain is half gone. I don't think you're giving yourself enough oh, credit. <laughs> before I go, I'll give you my mantra, my reason for hope in the world. 10,000 years ago, we had a thing called the Agricultural Revolution. Up before that, women dug for roots and picked berries, and men tried to shoot an animal, probably with a bow and arrow. And uh, we were hunters and gatherers. But over thousands of years, we had an agricultural revolution. And now we eat better, but kings and queens and, and other powerful people rule the world. Then we had an industrial revolution. That took hundreds of years. 
I guess it is about 300 years ago that the steam engines were first invented. And then now we have the information revolution. And this is the hope of the world. In decades, things are happening which no one believed would happen. And I think the women's revolution will be part of the victory. I describe this is the kind of victory. Imagine a seesaw, and one end of the seesaw is on the ground because it's got a basket half full of big rocks. And the other side of the seesaw is up in the air because it's a basket uh, not quite half full of sand. And we've got teaspoons, and we're trying to put more sand in that side. Most people are laughing at us. They say, oh, people like you have been trying for thousands of years. Uh, but it's that, that seesaw hasn't moved. Those big rocks have been there, and they're going to stay there. Keep it up. But we say, no, we're getting more people with teaspoons all the, all the time, and it's... In a, we think that in a few years, we'll, our, our side of the seesaw is going to have more than half full of sand, and you'll see that whole seesaw go slowly, slowly in the opposite direction. And the big rocks will not be able to keep their side down anymore because there'll be more and more sand, and we're getting more and more people with teaspoons. And I get letters from people who sign themselves... A mem- another member of the Teaspoon Brigade. <laughs> well, Mr. Seeger, I can tell you it's been a real pleasure to do this interview with you. An honor. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm sorry I won't be down singing in Atlanta again. I used to get down there every few years. And one of my best songs is about that young fellow who was only 14 years old going to school in Alabama. And he graduated from high school at age 15, but when he was 14, somebody published a newspaper and said, why do Negroes want to marry whites? Don't they know that we're supposed to be separate races? And this 14-year-old writes, dear editor, surely Mr. So-and-so, who wrote that letter yesterday, must know that if there are people in America of mixed ancestry, it's not because Negroes want to marry whites. It's because of aggressive white males taking advantage of defenseless black females. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, Mr. Seeger, anything you'd like to say to our audience before we part? Uh, don't give up. Oh, the hope tree. Do you know about the hope tree? Let's Down hear. in the bottom and, uh, end of Manhattan in 1911, that horrible fire. There was a little tree that was burnt by the fire, but the roots were not killed. And the next spring, they sent up green shoots. And somebody said, let's make sure that tree is watered. And they got a little committee together, and they take turns watering it. And now the tree is, oh gosh, it must be eight or ten feet tall. And this committee has grown. It's called the Hope Tree. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, Mr. Seeger, 
I appreciate this a lot. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.